Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. And for those of you online, good morning to you too. We are in the gospel according to Mark, chapter 14. And if you have your Bibles, please turn there. We will in one moment stand and read verses 12 through 21. Would you stand, please, for our reading of God's Word, beginning in verse 12. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared. There make ready for us. So his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as... He had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. In the evening, he came with the twelve. Now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him, one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? And he answered and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. Please be seated. Handling Judas, that's this morning's title, and I think it's a very exciting passage. There are some uh, gems in here that uh, we would miss. And there's something that I'm missing. Must have left it on my desk. It was something for all of you. You've missed out. Now you'll never be happy. Uh, but it, <laughs> it's still silly. Handling G- Judas by Jesus, incidentally, and again, uh, some really hidden truths in here that are, hopefully I can bring them out. Because the enemies of Christ, they always think that they're in control. This has been the case since he walked the earth. Uh, They are in control of their choices. Uh, That much is is sure. If they choose to side with evil, then that is their decision. In less than 20 hours from this 12th verse, Jesus will be crucified. Uh, His remaining hours are spent with his Twelve disciples, well, then then it will be down to eleven, mostly in this upper room in Jerusalem. And he conceals on purpose the location of this room as he does conceal the identity of his betrayer. And he will, of course, let that develop and and they will find out who this uh, traitor is. And he does this for very good reason. So let's look at verse 12 now. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? Uh, Speaking of killing the Passover, when they say when they killed the Passover lamb, well, if we look back at verses 10 and 11, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So they sought how they might conveniently betray him. And that is, of course, to kill him. Uh, They did not see him as God's Passover lamb. That is who he is. And so uh, Mark is not incidentally saying that the sacrifices were taking place at this very moment. Here in verse 12, where he says, Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb. He's not saying they're killing the Passover lamb as they're meeting. That will come, uh, actually, the, uh, the next day. So, uh, but it is the Passover. It is the, the whole, the, their day went from sundown to sundown. 
I do not believe in a Friday crucifixion. I believe in a Thursday crucifixion. Uh, Jesus said it's three days and three nights. There's a lot of evidence. I don't want to go into it right now, but suffice it to say that I believe this is now our Wednesday evening, which is now their beginning of Thursday because they go from sundown to sundown, and and that's where we are. And this starts the Passover. Uh, uh, So, again, within 24 hours um, would be uh, our Thursday evening, when the sacrifices would be completed uh, by the Jews. But the sacrifices of the Passover have not yet, uh, the priests have not yet started to slaughter them. Every meal that day was a Passover meal. Once the sun went down and Thursday was in effect. As uh, for us, at breakfast is a Christmas breakfast on Christmas Day. Every meal on Christmas Day is a Christmas meal. And so it is. Uh, with the Passover. There were other meals. The people did not starve all day. They did eat. And this is what they're going to have in a little bit. And I'll use, give you a few scripture verses to support this. Um, John's Gospel, chapter 13, verse 29. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast. Well, I thought they were at the feast. I thought everything was prepared. Well, that's because it's not the Passover meal. It is a Passover meal. Again, John 18, verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. So there's Jesus. He's arrested and still haven't eaten the Passover. So you understand why. Um, this reference to the Passover uh, meal is not the one where they take the lamb that was uh, indicative of the lamb that was slaughtered in the days of Moses while they were in Egypt, whose blood they put on the uh, threshold of the door. Where do you want us to go prepare that you may eat the Passover? And, uh, well, they don't know where the place is. And he doesn't give them an address. He doesn't. Say, he gives them um, uh, indications, what to look for, what they can expect. And the reason why he is doing this is because he does not want Judas Iscariot to know where this upper room is going to be, where they're going to meet, because he knows that if Judas finds out, Judas will have him arrested there. And uh, that's not how he's going to let it happen. Verse 13, and he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. So there's the, he's concealing it. Um, they have to go there, and he's keeping an eye on Judas. He's not sending Judas. And he, they're, they're going to see a man carrying a, a pitcher of water, which was extremely rare. In those days, the women carried pitchers of water. If a man wanted to carry water, he would use a wineskin or a water skin, but he typically would not do that. So this man is going to be outstanding to them, and when they see it, they'll know immediately. Well, how often do you see that? That's the guy the Lord was talking about. Uh, So they'll have no difficulty spotting him. Verse 14, wherever he goes in, Say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Um, This is going to be the last acceptable Jewish Passover ever. Once Christ is crucified, the Passover of the Jewish people is now obsolete, and which is why Paul writes the letter to the Hebrews. He stopped going down to the temple. You have an, an offering in Christ. He is our Passover. And to go and still pretend that you have to offer animal blood sacrifices when the Son of God has offered himself a sacrifice is to trample the blood of Christ, and there remains no forgiveness for you after that. And it's a very serious business. Uh, disciples, <clears throat> these disciples, evidently following the servant, the man with the pitcher is the servant who leads them to the owner, uh, the master of uh, the house, who will then take them upstairs where everything is ready. Verse 15 now, 
Then they will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared, and there make ready for us. There would be the couches and the cushions, the low table furniture there um, for 13 men. This was arranged for. They're not sitting at tables like we sit at tables and chairs like we sit at in chairs. They are re- going to be largely um, in a prone position, dining and reclining, uh, which is why, you know, we read of John leaning back on the, on the chest, the bosom of the Lord, is because they were in that position, whereas the guy next to you is uh, on his right elbow, and you're on your right elbow, and you lean back, well, his chest is going to be there. All that Jesus needed was provided by friends throughout his ministry. And he just lived in such a way, he just trusted God and, and was who he was. And that is an example for us. Someone loaned him once a boat to preach from, and he did just that. He preached from the boat. Another loaned him a donkey to enter into Jerusalem as the king in fulfillment of the prophecies, especially from Zechariah. Someone loaned him this evening a a large upper room to dine in, and uh, someone is going to loan him an empty grave for a few days. Uh, That's all he'll need. And so here in the upper room, the Lord is now going to pour out his love. John 13 gives us details about the initial phases of their entry into this upper room. These 13 men, John chapter 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when you see it there, before the, pe- the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, and that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And that's the big part of that 13th chapter. He loved them to the end. It does not say he loved only them to the end. He loves us just as much. The love does not fade. John 13, again, verses 3 and 4, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from the supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. And there we know he washed the disciples' feet. Mary, uh, a few days earlier in Bethany, had a fragrant spikenard oil that she broke and anointed his feet, and that fragrance from the spikenard filled the room. It was her expression of love. But his love for his own, loving them to the end, is filling the room with the fragrance of his love. In this atmosphere of love, he is teaching them servanthood. So it's a critical part when Jesus, when we're told he washes the disciples' feet. And, you know, Peter, of course, resisted. No way am I going to let my master wash me, the servant's feet. And Christ said, if I don't wash you, you have nothing with me. But if I wash you, you will be clean. And Peter says, pour it all over me. He's to absolute surrender. But he loved them to the end. In that environment, he taught them Humility and servanthood. And we miss that today. We miss that. I know how I've missed it over the years. You get upset with someone whom the devil has tripped up. But if we remember that God loves them and that it is the devil tripping them up, then we're not so ready to be resentful and bitter. It, takes, it shaves off the carnality of what's going on in this world. Because we're supposed to live not as though we figured it out, but that it has been revealed to us what is going on. And so the Lamb of God reminded them of the blood that would be on the doorpost there when they were in Egypt. And this is what this Passover was all about. Here he is, this great servant that loves his people, is saying... God loves you so much, he is going to be the, his son is going to be the Lamb of God. It is in this atmosphere of love that he taught servanthood and gave us the communion table. It came from this room at this very time. 
He washes their feet, and then he will institute what we call communion. And there, while dining together, Judas Iscariot would be released to betray him. He's going to wash the feet of Judas, too. The greatest teachings on the Holy Spirit took place in this upper, upper room. John chapter 14 through 17. Is, well, 17 is the Lord's Prayer, which took place in this room also. But the teachings on the Holy Spirit are just uh, unmatched in the Scripture. The details given by Christ himself to us. I'll not leave you orphans. And in this room, he did sing his last song while on earth. We'll get that in a few sessions later. In verse 14, it says, So that his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he said to them, and they prepared the Passover, which was a process, again, that would be into the next evening. His directions, incidentally, are similar to those given in Mark 11 when he sent them to, find the, to get the donkey that he was going to ride into Jerusalem on. But back to this Passover the Jewish Passover at this time. It consisted of the roasted lamb, the flat bread, bread without leaven, and bitter herbs. The lamb it was to remind the people in every generation about the blood applied to the doorposts while they lived in Egypt as slaves, that God was delivering them, and that blood would be the indication to the angel of death, that these were God's people. And this is still the way it is. It is the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sins. And judgment is removed from us as sinners because of our faith. God says, listen, I know you're sinners by nature in this life. You're going to sin. You're born in iniquity. As cute as you might be when you're born, you are born a sinner. But you can be born again. So that when you carry out those sins... Uh, the judgment will be passed over you because of the Lamb of God. The bread reminded the people of the haste made to get out of slavery, to get out of Egypt. And it is to remind the believer of the haste to turn away from the old life, to turn to Christ. They didn't have time for the bread to rise. They had to get out of there. This was an urgent matter to God. Salvation is a bloody matter, it is an urgent matter, and there is bitterness connected with the whole affair. And so, the bitter herbs, which spoke of the sufferings that they endured while slaves in Egypt. A reminder for us, it speaks about our bitterness experience when we were slaves of Satan. And this is what God has delivered us to. So Jesus talks about joy, which we have to fight for in this life. He says, and he'll say it in this upper room. We won't get it here in Mark, but it's in John. Uh, in the world, you're going to have tribulation. You're going to have hard times. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Well, that be of good cheer part, I, maybe it comes easy to one of you. I doubt it. It may at times, but overall, it's a long, hard haul. And if you're serving the Lord, there are going to be things that are going to attack that cheer. And that is Satan. And we learn this, and we learn not to give it up to him, but to fight to retain it. And this is one reason why Christians love singing to the Lord. It gives you a pit stop sort of thing to get, you know, sort of shut out everything else and sing to the one whom you believe in. Now, century later, centuries later, the Jews bloated this simple ceremony from God. The lamb, the bread, the herbs. But they've added to it napkins and eggs and going outside. This is not from God. This is something the Jews put into it. And in fact, there were not even napkins in those. They didn't use napkins. They wiped their hands on their bread or they licked their fingers. Then they wiped their hands on their bread. And then they ate the bread sometimes. So, uh, but uh, this is what I, you know, when I know Christians mean well when they have these rabbis come and teach on the cedar. It means nothing to us. They missed the, the, the Messiah. We have the Christ. We don't need to find out what the egg means and Elijah's down the block or something and looking for him. I know, I don't want to be too hard because I know some of you have probably attended churches where they did these things and you were so impressed. 
but they really have nothing to do with us at all. And if the Jews had just retained the simplicity of it, maybe they would see the Messiah fulfilling these emblems that are given to us. Well, uh, no hate mail on that, please. I'll read it, and then I'll say, God, can you get them? Because I'm special to you, and they're not. (laughs) Certainly doesn't work that way. Anyway, uh, verse 17 Uh, Let me just pause to add a little bit more to that. We don't need to sensationalize our faith. It is sensational. Just the blood of Jesus Christ, it is a big deal. I mean, there is nowhere on earth like the church of God. Well, you know, no place like home. Sure, that's true. And there are believers there in God's work. But when he brings a bunch of believers together and says, get along in love, there's no place like it. And it is a tragedy that so many Christians have a low opinion of the church. They think the church is their social club, that they can go in and do this. And and it's not. It's God's house. And he has appointed overseers of this house, and they will enforce the policies. And this is a good thing, something to embrace. I think when you come to this church, everything's pretty much done for you, except, you know, you're seating. Well, sometimes you're even assisted to sit. You come in, you worship, you fellowship. And you go home if you want. Well, eventually we're going to send you home, or at least out of here. <laughs> but it, it, we, we've not come here. We've come to worship God. And uh, it is very powerful. And if it wasn't, Satan wouldn't hate it so much and work so hard to leaven the church, to corrupt the pastors, to weaken them, so that the pastors begin to be led by you instead of you being led by the pastor. That is perversion. And there's nothing to boast uh, to that you got your will done with the pastor. The, the pastor should be saying, God, will, I, that your will be done, my Father in heaven. And you know the drill. So, back to this, uh, verse 17. In the evening he came with the twelve. Now, he's going to only leave with eleven of them. But between verses 17 and the next verse, 18, that's when Jesus will wash their feet. Verse, it appears that way. Sometimes it's hard to figure these things out because the apostles just, you know, it's kind of like, if you ever come to church and you say, you know, the pastor doesn't stay on point. He, sometimes he goes down these little rabbit trails. Well, look at the Gospels. They uh, did it all the time. And don't stop there. Go back to Genesis and work your way to Revelation. And find Revelation doesn't even stay on cue. Uh, this is because there's so much to say about God. How can you how can you just you know outline it? You can try, but you'll find out the outline. Paul is notorious notorious for doing what I just did, <laughs> talking about one thing, and then goes down this whole two or three chapters more on something else, and then comes back to it. And if the reader is not careful, you say, "I lost the point." Well, verse eighteen. Now, as they sat and ate, Jesus said, the foot washing is over. Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. That was a bombshell to them, and it should not have been. This is not the first time he's brought this up with them. Earlier, he warned them on this very thing. He preached a sermon that people didn't like. We don't have that problem today. John chapter 6. This is after, you know, unless you, you know, eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. And they, of course, took it literal, and, which is so dumb. Because if it was literal, he would hold his arm out and say, here, take a bite. He was spiritualizing his points that they would never forget what he was saying. Because it's pretty intense to say to someone, you'd, well, first of all, who is saying it? Who is qualified to say it? No angel could say this. He must be God the Son. And, and so, of course, he says this, and this is a hard saying, which is another way of saying we don't like your sermons, nor you anymore. Verse 70 of John 6, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot. So why are they so shocked now? Because, of course, whenever Christ spoke of hard things, they kind of like tuned him out. He's going to release Judas to do his wicked work. And it will be at the hour of his choosing. We talked about this last session. 
their, the, the Pharisees did not want uh, Jesus to be betrayed while the multitudes were in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. They wanted uh, the crowds to die down. In fact, when the crowds are asleep, that's when they're going to arrest him. Anyway, um, <clears throat> Mark chapter 14, which we're in, verse 2, but they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. Well, Jesus is saying, he's going to betray me. And they're going to find out it's going to be that Jewish day when he is betrayed. Uh, hell was not allowed to arrange the hour of his cross. Uh, it, his sovereignty is all over this. But by this time, Jewish, uh, Judas, not Jewish, but Judas had sailed beyond the point of repentance. He was gone. Throughout the whole thing, Christ is giving him an opportunity when he veils the location of the upper room. He's saying, I don't want Judas to know he's going to, you know, jump the gun and have me arrested there. But I want to give him time to repent. And he's going to continue to give. He's going to give him an opportunity to repent right up until Judas hangs himself. When he is arrested, Jesus refers to Judas as a friend. He's, he calls him a friend, giving him a chance. But he doesn't take it. Days earlier, he tried to reach Judas when he rebuked him for his greed. This oil could have, the spike knot could have been given, you know, sold and given to the poor, and Jesus rebuked him. And he didn't like that. We talked about that last session. Clumsy, humanistic people have tried to save the reputation of Judas. It is uh, a vain thing to do. They say, some of them, that Judas betrayed Jesus in order to force Jesus into revealing his power and establishing his messianic kingdom in Israel. Others say that he was nothing but a servant who obediently fulfilled God's prophecies. These are attempts to take Judas off the hook. We'll get to in a moment what God says about Judas. Uh, he was not a robot. He was a willing pawn of darkness. He was a responsible human being who made his own choices. Just like when a pastor stands up and reads from Isaiah, your sins have separated you. God is not deaf or blind. He sees what's going on. He is available. He is a participant. But you don't want to come to him. It's your choice. Don't go, you know, blaming God when you find yourselves in hell because you chose to not believe in him. You got what you wanted. And so this is the case with Judas. None who betray Jesus do it nobly, regardless of whatever human credentials they may hold or who they think they are impressing. There is no such thing as a helpless victim of merciless predestination. In other words, God didn't say, listen, you're going to hell and there's nothing you can do about it. He did not say, you know, when Judas is born, I'm going to make him a devil. That's why Christ is giving him these chances and calling him a friend up to the end. And it is a misguided theology that suggests that he was powerless in all of this. Judas was lost for the same reason millions are lost today and countless multitudes, countless to us, have been lost over the centuries. Unbelief. Refusing to receive Christ. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Well, faith in what? In Jesus Christ. Now, back to John chapter 6, where they didn't care for that sermon. <clears throat> but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were, who did not believe, and who would betray him. There's two different groups there. There's that one that said, this is a hard saying, we no longer want you. And then there's Judas. He continues in John 6 and verse 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. They were disciples, and now they're not. It was their choice. Then Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go away? He did not say, please stay. He gave them the choice. And he was going to honor their choice. If they said, 
yeah, we're done, he would have just went on about his ministry. He would not have given them a call the next day and said, we haven't seen you in church. Are you planning to come back? Uh, we need to, you know, anyway, he just uh, he honored their decision. He treated them like adults, giving them a choice, thereby destroying the silly notion of this unalterable predestination, as I mentioned. Men may guess, but God declares. Men can say, well, you know, Judas, he was, you know, he really was, no, he was a devil. And he chose to be, and he wasn't born that way. John chapter 13, here's what God says. Now, after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Matthew, uh, John 17, 12. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of hell. That's the son of perdition. Why is that? Because he did what the devil wanted, not God. Matthew 25. And he wasn't in the flesh. This was his will. When we sin as Christians, it's the flesh. It is that sinful nature getting the upper hand. But when a person willfully rejects God, it is not their flesh. It is them. It is who they are. They will not have this man rule over us. Matthew 25, verse 46. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There's a consequence for your decision concerning the Christ. Because Christ knew that Judas and others would reject him, in no way means that he caused it. He simply knew what they were going to do. And he's not going to force them into heaven. No one in heaven will have lash marks on them from being driven in. He is a shepherd. He leads in. He's not a cattle driver. However, God still controlled his enemies as he does to this day. That's what sovereignty does. John 13, 11, For he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, You are not all clean. This is when he washed their feet. He knew he would. He washed their feet. He said, you're clean because I've pronounced you clean. But Judas would have none of it. He just went through the ritual. He didn't mean it. In the end, there's a contrast given to us. There's Peter who failed because of his flesh and went out and wept and repented and was restored. And there's Judas who regretted his decision. It didn't work out right. And he went and killed himself. He did not repent. And, and these lessons are there for us to consider and understand. Since the church has been born, miraculously, Satan has filled many hearts of churchgoers, some churchgoers, who really don't care about Christ, but about themselves. In the book of Acts, in the fifth chapter, there was a man and woman who pledged a large donation to the church. It could have been 30 cents. It would not have mattered. What mattered was, is they lied about it. They really weren't interesting, interested in serving the Lord. They wanted people to applaud them. They wanted to be recognized as these devout believers and givers. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And there is one indication that the Holy Spirit is not an it, but a him. He can be lied to. He is a person. If you have never been born again and you go to your death, you will wish you've never been born at all. And this is what God is saying. It would be better if he was not born. But he was born. And he had every... Listen, he could not stand before God and say, well, why? I, I was so confused about things. Because God would say, well, the other 11 were not. And you, Judas, you kept the money box be and others trusted you because you were so intelligent. And so are we to believe that the intelligent people of the world cannot believe? But the not so intelligent are the ones that get saved? No, it comes down to the individual. Intelligence has nothing to do with it. It comes down to the will. I mean, you've got to use your brains to some degree and reason, but you do not have to be one of those high IQ types, you can be of a lower IQ. Verse 19, And they began to be sorrowful and said to him, 
one by one, is it I? And another said, is it I? You've got to love this part about these men. Startled by his word, and one of you will betray me. That was the bombshell. Again, they should have had it. They did not. But they trusted his words more than their own hearts. If he said one was a betrayer, they believed it. So much they felt it could be them. Instead of saying, no way. Well, maybe, you know, Peter did not say, well, John might betray you, but I'm not at this moment. The Greek is actually this. It's not me, is it? That's the Greek phrase. It's not me, is it, Lord? And so when they say, is it I? They're very concerned. They have skin in the game. They were suspicious of them, their own selves. They weren't cocky at this point. We'll get to Judas in a moment about this. Eleven men were afraid and sorrowful. The twelfth was not. Each man, no matter how much he hated this fact, he realized that he had the capacity to be a traitor. Paul says this in Romans about this thing about we people. He says, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. Do you know some commentators try to say Paul didn't know what he was talking about? Not the believing commentators, those liberal ones. I don't mean politically liberal, theologically liberal. A theologically liberal person is one that does not believe the Bible. But they use it nonetheless to criticize. I, again, I don't understand when people say, well, have no more of the Bible. Why, why do they still call themselves a church? Why don't they go to call themselves somebody else? The people with happy hats or something. But they insist on corrupting Christianity that they don't even believe and not consider that a mean thing to do. Anyway, the apostles were not above self-examination and hopefully we are not either. They questioned their loyalty to God. Second Corinthians. And you see, this, here's the thing about, second, about the Corinthian letters. So I, um, I'm saying, well, Lord, we'll be coming to an end on Mark's gospel. Where are we going next? I would like to do the book of Acts because it's exciting. But a church needs correction, they, whether they want it or not. And where do you get that from? You, you don't get it so much from the Old Testament because we can hide behind, well, those were the Jews. We get it from the letters in the New Testament. They get up in your face. Paul says, what, you don't have houses to eat in? You've got to come to the church and burden everybody? What, are you are you getting drunk at the communion table? Who do you think? What is wrong with you? So when you hear these things coming off the Scripture in the presence of the Holy Spirit in God's house that is the most special place on earth, the Holy Spirit begins to do his work. And that's what makes a strong and solid church are people who can sit under the word of God together, rowing in the same direction, even if we are all messed up to some degree. So this uh, loyalty, Paul, when he gets to talking about the Corinthians, who were in 1 Corinthians, he, he dealt with the, the crazy ones. The ones that were really just not coming under the Spirit, but acting like they were. It was an overall good church. He said none of them lacked the Spirit and the gifts, but they abused them, many of them. And they turned on him. But anyway, he says in the second letter, which is a little softer um, until you get towards the end, and he has to go, go again against the, the knuckleheads in the church. He says, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified? So you come back and you hear these men say, is it I? They're examining themselves. They're not cocky. Now, unfortunately, there are some Christians that give their life to Christ and won't receive the forgiveness and they question their faith when they shouldn't be questioning their faith. When they should be out serving the Lord. Because they do know that he is their savior. This is for those who are pretending. For those who dare to have the Lord wash their feet while they're intending to betray him anyway. And 
uh, this is, these are beautiful things. I mean, I'm a person just like you. When I come to these things in the scripture, I don't feel spooked by them. I may have reverence. There's something, the fear of God in me. But I see all of it as to, I've always felt, as the saying goes, if I were the only person born, Christ would die for me still. I've always felt his love. Why would I not? He died for me. In that Christ demonstrated his love and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Paul wrote to the Romans. He proves his love. What more do you want? It's walking around, am I saved or not? What do you believe? He died and rose again to take your sin away. And if you say, yeah, then then don't let the devil trip you up and sideline you and make you a burden to everybody else. Get in the fight. Preach Christ. Serve. Anyway, men have often, these men, they often debated who was the greatest amongst themselves. Now here they are faced with the vilest part of themselves. Matthew, Matthew tells us what Judas said. Matthew 26. And Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? And he said to him, you said it. What did he say? He didn't say anything different from the other guys. Well, yeah, he did. The others said, Lord, is it I? He says, Rabbi, is it I? There's a huge difference. Christ is not this, just this great man amongst the Gandhis and the Bahudas and whoever else is out there. That was intentional. <laughs> Boy, he's so dumb he doesn't know how to say Bahuda. You say, you shouldn't mock them. Why? I mean, they're sending people to hell. I'm supposed to be impressed with this lie? Right now, the Buddhists are leading the charge and persecuting Christians in Burma. They're slaughtering them. They're sending in airplanes and military and slaughtering believers. Why? What did these people ever do to anyone? Right now, the Taliban are in Afghanistan going through people's phones and seeing if there's a Bible on it. So they can publicly execute them as viciously as they can think of. And I'm supposed to be, or you know, let's be respectful. Well, I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but I'm not going to be respectful of that which is disrespectful. And uh, if if you don't like it, I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm not changing. Anyway, you know, Elijah on Mount Carmel said, you know, shout louder. Maybe your God's in the bathroom. Maybe he's taking a nap. Was he supposed to respect these people for what they were doing to, the, to little babies that were born in their practice of sacrifice? Are we supposed to respect abortion clinics? I'm not saying we should do violence. I'm not saying not physical violence. Spiritual violence is on the table. So, back to this. Uh, all of them said, Lord, is it I, except Judas, the unbeliever. They can, you know, they'll grant, well, Jesus was a good man. You know, he cared for the poor. He spoke about love. Yeah, well, is he the Lord God or not? That's what it comes down to. Because if you get that question wrong, that tradition that he spoke about concerning Jesus is going to be spoken about you too. Who do you say the Son of Man? It is the most single important question about every human being. And then here come the protesters. What about the people who never believe? What about this? Listen, the God of the universe will do right. But once you learn about him, now it's on you. Your sins have to be dealt with. Well, verse 20. He answered and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. I would have started a fast right then. He says, the guy that eats with me, that's it. I'm done. I'm not eating anything else. A very simple formula. And maybe they did that, except Judas. No one suspected it was Judas. The tragedy of Judas tells us that a man can fall slowly. That a human being can fall to sin in slow motion. That they can trade against Jesus slowly. How many little children are born interested in God, but by the time they become adults, they want no part of him because they're listening to the wrong people. They're they're being indoctrinated by Satan through various vehicles, and you know who they are. Verse 21, 
The Son of Man indeed goes, just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he were never born. And there you go. If you're not born again, you're going to be sorry you've been born at all. Closed hearts. They don't see themselves in the Scripture. They don't see themselves as a Judas or a Cain or a Balaam or any of the many other characters, a Jezebel. They just see themselves as decent, intelligent people because they're comparing themselves with themselves, as Paul wrote, I believe, the Corinthians, comparing themselves with themselves. They are not wise. If there is a God, we should be very much interested in what interests him, what upsets him, what does not upset him. It is insanity to... Know that there is a superior. You cannot know there's not a God. I'm sorry. I think if you say I'm an atheist, I think you're lying. You've lied to yourself so much you can't tell the truth to yourself. Because you know, when you look at the moon and you see it round and it stays where it's supposed to be, something's keeping it there. You look at the rest of the universe and you say, why do we not? Anyway, God says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Because he's lying to himself. Uh, Psalm, where he's quoting here, Psalm 41.9. And you say, well, you know, pastor, you're offending me. Oh, like you don't offend Christians when you call us, you know, narrow-minded, fundamental, and self-righteous. Verse, (laughs) Jesus' quote, I mean, like you got to, you can get in the flesh preaching righteousness, I'm telling you. (laughs) You just can you say, is that a six-shooter the pastor has? <laughs> yeah, but not right now. He is quoting Psalm 41. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. He ate my bread. Who's paying for this meal? It ain't Judas. Uh, anyway, that's when he said, the Son of Man indeed goes, verse 21, just as it is written of him. That's the primary verse, but you can take Psalm 29, Isaiah 53, and other verses also. And so here it is. To the very end, Jesus is hiding from his disciples who the betrayer is. Giving Judas an opportunity, yes, to turn from his sin. What would have happened if Peter found out Judas was going to betray Jesus? Judas Judas would have been killed by Peter before he could have betrayed him. It's a simple formula. How do we know this? Well, Peter tried to find out in John 12. He nudges to John. Who who is it? And John tries to find out. Jesus, what's the one that dips bread with me? And they're like, well, we've been all. I mean, what, what is that? He doesn't come out and say, it is Judas, because again... He knows Peter will kill him. And what about Simon the Zealot? He probably would jump in too. The Lord is handling Judas. And he's handling all of us. Is it benevolent or not? It's up to us. Jesus is never thanked by Judas for protecting him. Peter will write this, will say this, Acts chapter 1. Judas, by transgression, fell that he might go to his own place, which is perdition, hell. Now, Jesus says, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. The judgment of Judas is just. And those who line up with him, their judgment is just. You say, that doesn't sound very loving. Don't be silly been talking to you nothing about nothing but the love of God, reaching out to sinners, and because he acts like God in judging those who reject him, somehow it's not loving. You know, it may work that way in your imagination, but uh, that's not the truth. Yeah, Judas was obeying the prince of darkness. Luke 22, verse 53, When I was with you daily in the temple... You did not seize me, but this is your hour, the power of darkness. No other and no ordinary victim of betrayal can be, can receive the intensity of these words. The intensity of these words cannot apply to a mere human being. 
the betrayal, <coughs> pardon me, <clears throat> the betrayal of sinners against God, against Christ, is out of the ordinary. So I'm almost done. John chapter 13, verse 30. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. A few hours later, Judas will be dead, and he will be damned, not because he killed himself physically, but because he traded against Christ. Judas, for him, it is still night. It will always be night. If you have not the fear of God, you have not knowledge. Because the Bible says the beginning, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. To see life for what it really is. Enough of it. Not all of it, but enough. And that's why we give sinners a chance to get right with God. At the end of each service, let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, lesson after lesson, verse after verse, Christian after Christian, witness after witness, the armies of the righteous have come down through the centuries, time and time again to believers. And the proof of that is that many of those unbelievers that hear the gospel have become saved. But others harden their hearts as though you have no right to be sovereign, as though you have no right to be savior, as though you have no right to define sin, as though you have no right to point out what false religions are and who they are. And so they go to their graves and in eternal darkness because they would not listen. And yet, even at this very moment, And throughout this day, and churches throughout the world, the gospel will be preached. The invitation to sinners will be given to come, receive the Passover. Let the judgment pass over you because of the death of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning, or if you're watching or listening online, And you want Jesus Christ as your Savior. And step up and receive it. Let no one block you from your eternal glory. Not even yourself. If you make this prayer with me in sincerity, God receives you. That's his plan of salvation. If you say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I've broken your commandments. It only takes one. And I ask you to forgive me. I come to you because no one else is glorious enough. No one else is great enough. No one else is good enough to die in my place as me for my sins but you. And I come to you and I ask you to receive me as your own. I ask that you would forgive me. And from this day forward, be not only the one that saves me from my sin and its judgment, but also the one who will lord over my life, rule over my life, And I give my life to you. And now, Father, if anyone has not hardened their heart and has has come to you this morning, may there be no shame. May they be unashamed of their confession from this day forward for the the rest of their existence. And we commit these things into your hands in Jesus' name. Amen.